Amen. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles in your own copy of Scripture to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at a text that has divided, befuddled, and frustrated people since the time that Paul wrote it. It's been a point of contention among many Christians, and it ought not to be, but it has been. And it's a text, though, that is gloriously beautiful and powerful. If read in its plain way, rather than trying to maneuver and trying to make sense of all the passages that are hard in Scripture... What do I mean? Well, this is not a text that I was very excited about in college. In fact, I despise this text. I didn't read this text very often because it has some very unsavory things in it. It has some things that are difficult to read, and I despised it largely because I misunderstood the great narrative of Scripture. I misunderstood it, and I tried to take my own notions of how God works, and I tried to foist that upon the Scriptures and say, no, 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 it can't mean that because God wouldn't do that. Instead of saying, no, 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 God, it says God is doing this. But once I let the text speak for itself rather than me trying to shave off a fact here and there and reinterpret what it was clearly saying... I was able to finally be astounded, as this text ought to do in each one of our hearts. And at the end of the day, really, each one of us has got to reckon with this text, because it's in the Bible. So I'm going to offer what I think is the plain reading of the text, but you don't have to agree with every jot and tittle of what I say. In fact, I would encourage you to look at the text yourself and wrestle with it. So if you're saying, you know what, Matt said that. And I see that, but I don't agree with it. I, in fact, I don't like it. Well, I'd encourage you in your own time to take it because if you want to submit to all Scripture being breathed out by God, you have to wrestle with this text. You can't get around it. You can't cut it out. It's here, and you have to wrestle with it. And you're going to have to do something other than saying, well, I see it's there, but I just don't get it, and moving on. You can't do that. You can't just say, well, I don't get that chapter. I'm just going to go on to chapter 10 because it's there too. You can't go on to chapter 11 because it's there too. And I'll say that it's in chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. It's in the entire Bible, what we're going to be looking at today. And I think if we reckon with how we were saved ourselves, it isn't that far off from our experience. See, our chapter today makes explicit what Paul has been talking about implicitly throughout the book of Romans. We're going to get there in a minute. But this chapter makes explicit what Paul has been implicitly teaching throughout the book of Romans for the first eight chapters. Theologians call this doctrine the doctrine of providence. Providence, like Providence, Rhode Island. That's why it was named that, because the early settlers understood that God was at work in the world. And so... I'm going to just simply define the doctrine of providence as this. And I'll repeat it if you are taking notes. Providence is God's intimate involvement with everything that happens in the world. God's intimate involvement with everything that happens in the world. He's not like a blind watchmaker who winds up the clock and lets it roll. He's intimately involved in every single happening in the world. 
in his world. That's really key. Each one of those words is really important to this definition. God's intimate involvement with everything that happens in his world. See, providence, though, shouldn't be understood as God like a puppet master who's pulling strings and, you know, I don't have a will. I'm just moving. I'm going to slap you in the face because God made me do it. That's not providence. Providence is not God doing this. And providence is not you being a robot and God pushing your buttons like your spouse may push your buttons or your children may push your buttons. It's not like that. Providence is not you being a robot. See, providence is the necessary implication that if God is really God, then this is what he does in his world. By definition, God upholds the earth by his power in his hand. He's got the whole world in his hands. If he's got the whole world in his hands, then he's involved in that world. Because he created all things, he owns all things. All that exists continues to exist because he holds it together. Look at Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. There is no being greater than God. Because all existence depends upon him. We just sang that a moment ago, that he's in the world. He gives life to all life thou givest, the true life of all. We breathe, we live, we move, we have our being, as we'll look at in chapter 11. We have it because God himself is the one who upholds you. So if you have a big view of God, like the Bible teaches, if you have a big view of God, period, if you say that God created all things, even this blade of grass, and he knows the number of the hairs on your head, and that if there's a sparrow that doesn't fall to the ground without him knowing it, then you're going to have to reckon with this doctrine of providence. But let me also say this. This doesn't deny our freedom as creatures. God's control of every facet of the world does not deny that we have freedom. We have freedom to choose who we will follow. What does God say to Israel? He says, choose this day whom you will follow. So you have freedom of choice. We get under other issues later of what all that means. This is a 30-minute sermon. This is not a three-week lecture on the providence of God. So forgive me if I don't keep you too long. See, our free choices, though, are not. This is very key. While we are free, autonomous people, our free choices are not outside of the will of God. Like what you ate for breakfast this morning, God is not like, oh my goodness, I didn't know Matt was going to eat three eggs and half a potato. That's what I had, by the way. You know, he's not surprised at what you're thinking right now instead of hearing the sermon. He's not surprised at that. I might be. You know, God's not surprised because he's God. If he knows all things and if he has orchestrated all things in the world, you've got to reckon with this text. See, even your free choices aren't outside of the will of God. He not only knows the future, but he directs all the affairs to reach to that future. The most heinous of all acts, I'll go there here. The most heinous of all acts, the, the sacrifice of the Son of God. What do we read about in the book of Acts? That that was God's design from the very beginning. He wasn't surprised when his son, who was sent for that very purpose, hung on a cross in all the suffering, the pain. As one theologian famously wrote, he said, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, 
then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. This is a glorious doctrine. This is a glorious truth that God, the creator of all things, knows everything about you. And he loves you anyway. Not anyway. He loves you as you are. He doesn't hold his nose at you and just kind of get okay by you. He loves you and he cares for you. See, the promises of God, though, are trustworthy and true because he directs guides all of the happenings in his world. And our choices are still our choices. See, God's providential care and human freedom are not at odds with each other. You have to hear that very clearly. They are not at odds with each other. They are both true. And I'm going to give you a word here, another theological word. This is, this is a, a, a word that embraces both of these things. It's called compatibilism. Compatibilism. That means that both God's control of all things and our human responsibility are compatible with each other. As one uh, English preacher said, I don't try to reconcile friends. They're compatible with each other. In fact, I don't know if you... Uh, I don't, is Cracker Jack still a thing? Are, are there Cracker Jack boxes still around? Well, I used to love Cracker Jack boxes because you get a little toy. I guess there's still toys in them. They're, they're not something that you typically hold on to for very long. But they used to have these secret decoder-type messages in the Cracker Jack box. And they'd give you the little secret message, and it'd have all this red scribbling all over it. But the message would be written in blue ink, Right? And what you would get with this secret message is you'd get a red film that you would then put over top of that secret message and you would find out that you're awesome or whatever the favorite message was. You're going to be rich, you know, whatever. And so that's how this works, is that to highlight one aspect that's in the Bible does not negate the other aspect. They're both there. They're both there. Both God calls you to repent and he also gives you the heart to want to repent. I'm going to, I don't want to go too far off my manuscript here, but you know, God says, repent. Oh, that my people would have a heart to obey me. And what does he say in Ezekiel? He says, I will give them a new heart because their hearts are so far from me. He says, both of those things are true. Repent. He says, I will give you a heart to repent. So both of these things are true. Both God's control of all molecules in the earth, because it is, And our responsibility. So, as I said, Romans 9 makes explicit what is an assumption of Paul's throughout. And I've spent a long time explaining chapter 9, and we're going to get there in a moment. Because I want us to have the right framework. So let me just walk through Romans, the first eight chapters, really quick. You ready? I'm just going to hit on a few of these, and you can write them down in your notes. But I want us to get in Paul's mind so that Romans 9 lands on us as heavy as it does Paul. So he says in chapter 1, verse uh, 21, he says, For although they knew God, he's talking about all people, really, all people, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, this is key, therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their own hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies 
among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God that they had, the truth that they knew about God, they exchanged it for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Chapter 2. He, meaning God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Chapter 3, verse 9. All people, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. So what's the remedy? Are you and I supposed to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps? We say, oh yeah, 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 I need to get my stuff right. No, the answer is not works, the answer is faith. And that's what he talks about in chapter 4. Remember, we looked at Abraham, the man of faith, Father Abraham, who had many sons. He says, faith was counted to him as righteousness. That's chapter 4, verse 22. Faith was counted to him as righteousness, not works. He's at pains to show that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then this beautiful verse, one of my favorite verses in Scripture, verse 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his own love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us while we were yet sinners dead in our trespasses and sins that we looked at in chapter 3 and then in chapter 6. So then we're slaves to sin, as chapter 6 says, right? Verse 22, it says, But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Chapter 7 that we heard a couple weeks ago is our wrestling with sin. I want you to feel this. Because we had it week after week. We're like, yeah, I, I see this sin in my own heart. I want us to wrestle with this. I want us to get it down deep in our bones that you are a sinner. You rebel against God. I rebel against God every single day. And I need to repent and turn to God every single day. It's not a once and done type thing. Because Paul ends that chapter 7 by saying, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how we are delivered is through Jesus Christ. And then verse 8, this beautiful chapter that we love. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? And then verse 28, what does he say? For all things work together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So if God works all things together, he's got to be intimately involved in all those things. He's not taken by surprise. And he is, in fact, moving the course of human history towards that great day. The day that all the prophets look forward to. The day when he will reveal himself in power and in glory. So, all of that was preparatory. And it's not going to be an extremely long sermon, I promise. Unless you want it to be. I can, I can rip on this all day because this is a beautiful doctrine. But 
The main point for chapter 9 is this. Salvation belongs to God and to God alone. Salvation belongs to God. If you really believe that you need to be saved, you can't save yourself. By definition, you are in need. You need someone outside of yourself to reach into the drowning waters and pull you out. That's glorious. It frees you up from having to beat yourself up. Say, God is so glorious that he saved me. He saved even me. This guy who still struggles with sin. Yes, he loves you still. So salvation belongs to God and to God alone. So let's look at our, I got three points here on how that's the case. The first point is this. Salvation belongs to God and to God alone, not based upon lineage or works, but on, but on faith. So let's look at verse 1. I'm going to read to verse 13. Romans 9, 1 through 13. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears, witness, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's speaking about Jews. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship of the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. See, Paul was sent to preach the gospel, to spread the gospel with those who were not Jews, otherwise known as Gentiles. And he has shown that Jew and Gentile are under the curse of sin and have earned the wages of that sin, which is death. He has shown that God, being rich in mercy, sent His Son to fulfill all of the law's demands of perfection and to offer us His own righteousness as a gift based upon faith. And He longs for those who, and Paul here is longing for ethnic the ethnic Jews, his brothers in the flesh, to come to know the Lord. The same fullness of their calling as God's people. Look at it in verse 4. He says, My kinsmen according to the flesh, they are Israelites. To them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship of the prophets. All these things belong to Israel, and they don't see it. My friend, Christian, listen to this. You are sitting under the preaching of God's word right now. You have God's very word yourself. And how often do we forsake not reading his word or prayer? A parent who loved you enough to tell you about Jesus. 
And how often do we also forsake our own calling as God's people to be all that he called us to be? See, the Israelites had all of that. And Paul says it, did, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to just have Scripture and to have God's will revealed to them. They didn't exercise the faith in the Messiah. And because they didn't exercise faith, they were at enmity. They were enemies against God. And so are you if you read God's Word and you say, Nah, not having it. Don't care. I'm going to sleep in. Don't care what God says. That's what we have to reckon with as God's people. They were unfaithful to that covenant that He graciously revealed to them. But He makes it clear that there has to be more than simply hearing and knowing God's commands. Right? He spends the next several verses from 7 to 13 showing that God's work of promise and belief that he's worked for, like that from the very beginning with Isaac. He mentions Isaac in, in verse 7, right? He mentions Isaac being this child of the promise, right? And he contrasts that with Ishmael. Remember, Ishmael was, was conceived by Abraham being with Hagar and saying, well, God said I was going to have a son, so I'm going to make it happen. And God says, uh-uh. No, it's the, it's the child of the promise. I'm the one who's going to cause your wife to conceive. So then we see again in verse 8. All right, look at verse 8. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So he's saying it does not matter if you are a Jew ethnically or not, because not all Israel is Israel. That's a key piece in Paul's theology. That's a key piece throughout the prophets. That not all Israel, just to say, hey, I was born an Israelite, therefore God owes it to me. He said, no, 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 no. Not all Israel is Israel. Within this larger framework, this larger umbrella of Israel, there's a small group of those who exercise faith that we'll look at here in a moment. See, he says verse, verse 8 is the same kind of language that you know, John the Baptist said to all the religious leaders, he says, don't, don't be proud of yourself and say, we have Abraham as our father. He says, I tell you the truth, God is able to raise up children from Abraham himself from these rocks. So don't boast in who your daddy was. It's not based upon your daddy. It's not based upon your mom's faith. It's based upon your faith and your exercise thereof. And so children, listen to me. Your faith has to be your own. You can't say, Mom and Dad love Jesus, therefore I must be okay. No, He calls all of us, adult and child, to repent and put faith in Jesus. And children, we long for you all to know Jesus as we know Jesus. We long for you to call on Him in faith. And that's why Mommy and Daddy keep talking to you about Jesus so much and trying to read the Bible even when you would rather be playing the Xbox or something. So he says it's not based upon your lineage. It's not based upon your works either, because that's our human tendency is to say, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do it myself, because that's what God wants, isn't it? He wants me to be a good person. He says, no, 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 don't get it wrong. It's not based upon works either, right? And this is what he goes on to talk about Jacob and Esau in verses 11 and 12. It says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. They hadn't done anything. Right? 
It's not based upon their work, but upon God pulling people out of their own sin. That's what Paul wants you to feel in your very bones, is that your salvation was never dependent upon you seeking for God. This is a great way the Baptist faith and message says what election is. This is what another doctrine called the doctrine of election, which is related to providence. So the, all these things are connected. So what does it say about election? Because it says in order that the purposes of election might stand, right? It says that in verse uh, verse 11 at the end there, election might continue. This is what the Baptist faith and message says. It says, election is the gracious purpose of God according to which he regenerates. That means cause to be born again justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is, and this is what I was talking about earlier, it is consistent with the free agency of man and woman and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. You see, this can be a heavy doctrine as well because it rubs against our own sensibilities and overestimation of our ability. That's why I spent so much time going over those chapters, because whether you and I believe it or not, we oftentimes try to smuggle in some good works, don't we? we try to smuggle in a little good works so that so that God, of course God would choose me. Why not? Look at me. We have to start with the fact that all people, Jews and Gentiles, you and I, that we've received God's gracious revealed word. We've looked out in creation and we've exchanged it for other paltry substitutes. And we have to reckon with the fact that we are dead in our sins and in our trespasses against God is what Paul said. That we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. No hope. That has to be our starting point when we talk about this chapter. And if you don't believe that, then this chapter makes no sense. It only makes sense when you start with the with the fact that we are dead in our sin and sins and trespasses. See, Lazarus probably wasn't complaining when he came out of the tomb and Jesus resurrected him from the dead. I promise you that Jairus was not upset with Jesus that he raised his daughter from the dead. And I promise you that the widow's that the widow whose son in, in the city of Nain, that she was, she was not upset when Jesus raised her little boy from the dead as he was being taken to his burial. And until we start with our own death in sin, this doctrine rubs us the wrong way. Instead of breathing life into us and saying, wow, this is incredible that God loved me enough to save even me. If you can't embrace that, then this, this Bible really means nothing. Because God is at pains to show you that salvation is of the Lord and of Him alone. This is the second point. This is the second point, that God gives people what they deserve. God gives people what they deserve. Look at uh, verses 14 through 22 with me. Verses 14 through 22. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, 
For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Well, who are you, O oh man? Hold on a second. He's lost my manuscript. That's not what he's Um, let me go back. Okay, so you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? What will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Oh my. (laughs) Oh my. What are you going to do with this verse? What are you going to do with this passage? Is that God is showing that he gives every single person what they deserve by rebelling against God. See, he uses this picture of Jacob and Esau in verse 13. You see that? Which is quoted from Malachi 1. You want to you look that up in your own time. But he talks about Jacob and Esau. He says, Esau I hated. Why did he hate him? Why? And this is another way. And it, it's, a, it's a Hebrew way of saying I'm setting myself against this person. So it's when you and I hate somebody, it's very ugly and very carnal and very human. <laughs> To say, I hate that person. That's not the way God hates. So when Scripture talks about God hating someone or something, it's that they are at enmity. They are enemies against Him. So when you hear this, like, whoa, God hates people? No, no. His enemies, He said against those, as we just sang in the call to worship, as we said in the call to worship, that He is, he is going to destroy the wicked. That's a heavy doctrine. It's not something we should just be glib over or something that we just should pass over like, that's not true. I don't like it. It's not true. No, no, no. It's true and it's it should break our hearts. That there are people who don't know God and who are dying and will never know God. That should break our hearts and that should move us to go tell people about God. See, God freely chose. He chose Esau. I mean, he chose Jacob. But see, Esau freely chose what he wanted to choose. Do you remember the story of Jacob and Esau? What did Esau do? He says, oh man, I'm so hungry. Give me some food. And what Jacob said, he said, I'll give you some food if you give me your birthright. And when Esau said, hey, what good is it if if I'm dead, my birthright? What he did is he despised the very thing that was was freely given to him as his birthright. He said, I don't want it because I want that soup instead. And so at that moment, that was his free choice to say, I don't want anything to have to do with this birthright. Give me the soup. So he freely chose to be at enmity against God. And then we see the example of Pharaoh out of Exodus, right? Even in the story of Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and God also hardened his heart. As you look at the story, I'd encourage you to go in your own time to look at Exodus, the first part of it, 1 through through 12 at least, and see how, how God hardened the heart, but Pharaoh also hardened his heart. This compatibility is what I've talked about, and I'd encourage you to go see it for yourself. And then Paul makes this stunning conclusion in verse 16. He says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion. doesn't depend upon your works. 
but it depends upon God who has mercy. And then verse 19, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? The fact is that no one can ultimately resist God's will. That's true. Ultimately, you and I can resist. Like if I say repent and believe, you say no. You can resist God's will. But what Paul's talking about, he's talking about this superstructure over that. He's saying, no, no, no. Even that itself, God knew. (laughs) Because we can't ultimately resist his will. He will have that for which he died. And we can run away from God's will for our lives. We can read scripture in Israel. That's the picture that they did time after time after time. And this is the freedom he affords us to highlight how merciful he is. Just how merciful is he is. As we spend our lives living for ourselves and despising other people in our hearts, if God ever were to choose someone to be saved, independent of our works, if, if God just chose one person to be saved, that would be astounding, and that would be merciful, and that would be gracious. The fact that God has chosen to pass over some shouldn't anger us if we truly understand our sin and the wages of that rebellion. The fact that God has chosen to save anyone ought to make our jaws drop and for us to fall down in amazement that He has revealed Himself to us. He's the potter. We are the clay. This is a picture from Jeremiah. I encourage you to go read it. I think it's Jeremiah uh, 18 or 19. I think it's 18. He molds us and makes us into the vessels for His purposes because is it not true let me just tap into your own spiritual life for a second is it not true that when you pray you are asking god to mold somebody to change somebody just even a little bit lord would you open up their eyes to see the beauty of jesus would you unstop their ears so that they can hear what i'm trying to tell them would you give them verily a new heart When we're praying, we're asking God to do something that only God can do. And that should relieve us to where you don't have to have all the awesome answers all the time when you start talking to people about Jesus. Because you're going to mess it up. I've messed it up tons of times. And at the the end of the day, I'm like, God, thank you that, that salvation depends on you and not upon me being eloquent. doesn't depend on me having the right answer at the right time. Right? He is the potter. And so when we pray, we are asking God to do what only God can do. So if you're a praying person, you know this to be true. You've seen God work independent of your working. He will do what he will do. He will have mercy on whom he has mercy. And even as we heard Jesus himself say, am I not free to do with my gifts as I want? And then finally, this is our third and final point is that God gives people what they don't deserve. God gives people what they deserve in their rebellion against Him, but He also gives people what they do not deserve. Look at verses 23 through 33. Verses 23 through 33. I'm actually going to go back to 22 to give the context. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which is prepared beforehand for glory. Even us 
whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people there, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching it, reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is a very short point because there's not much that needs to be said. Is that you look to Jesus. Because look, all these verses from Hosea chapters 1 and 2, Isaiah 10 verse 22, and Isaiah 1 verse 9, and Isaiah 28 16. It all comes from Isaiah. And Isaiah is at pains to tell the people, do not trust in Assyria. Do not trust in Egypt. Do not trust in yourself, Israel. But call out to God. And He will save you. See, Hosea was told to go marry a prostitute who was not looking for a husband. She was looking for love. She was looking for acceptance. She was looking for all of those things. And he was called to go be a husband to her and to pluck her out of that life of dissipation so that she might have a life of devotion to Jesus, to God. But particularly in these three Isaiah quotations, we're not going to get into this. Right now, we're going to get into this in chapter 11 about this remnant speaking that God is talking about here. That We're going to get into that in chapter 11. But the point here is that God is saying, look to me all the ends of the earth and be saved. Look to the king of the universe for salvation because salvation belongs to the Lord and to the Lord alone. And it is by sheer exercise of faith. This is the scandal of the gospel is that it's simply by believing in Jesus, by saying, I am not righteous, but He is, and looking to Him all the ends of the earth and being saved. And He will have mercy on those whom He has mercy. And so if you hear this, and you say, Lord, have mercy upon me, praise God in His mercy. He is forming you and shaping you into the vessel of mercy that He has shaped, has wanted to shape you from the beginning of time. You'll fail, my friend, and all you've got to do is simply look to Jesus. I know it sounds so simple, and I know it sounds so something that we typically take for granted, isn't it? But I promise you that when you're at pains and arguing with your children or your wife or your co-worker, you're wondering why is this happening, and you look to Jesus, and He makes it all seem a little bit clear, maybe not perfectly clear, because you're still going to have suffering. You're still going to have pain, as we saw last week. But the Lord says, in His mercy, I will have mercy on you. I will draw near to you. If you will just call out to me, Abba, Father. And that's what He's calling you to do, even this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are 
exceedingly kind. You are the potter and we are the clay. Mold us and shape us into what you want us to be. Forgive us for taking pride in our work and in our works. Forgive us for taking pride in who we know or who we were born to. Forgive us for not seeing that it is by crying out in faith for mercy and forgiveness that you will be exceedingly gracious and kind, abounding in steadfast love to all those who call out to you. We thank you for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.